we're starting a new series as, as well, so let's add to it. Um, our, our, we're, I've been looking forward to this because I love Christmas time. I'll be honest, there was a, I went through a phase where I hated Christmas, but it was because I was so wrapped up in the materialistic idea of Christmas. And I was, we went through a phase where I was struggling. It seemed like every year right at Christmas time is when we would get hit with stuff that was unexpected. And I would stress over the fact that I couldn't buy everything I wanted to buy for the people in my family. And I began to really dislike Christmas because I felt like that's all it had become was uh, a holiday of, of gift giving instead of uh, celebrating our Savior. And um, that eventually changed as I changed my view on things. And, uh, and God began to bless in a lot of ways. But I love Christmas, and I've been looking forward to this series, The Thrill of Hope. If Pastor Troy were here today, um, he would probably start out by singing by himself up here, O Holy Night. And those of you that know him. Yeah, Susan gets it. That's not going to happen. Uh, our pastor does not sing publicly um, other than in worship where if you're standing near him, you can hear him. But he's not going to get on a mic and sing intentionally. However, O Holy Night is the thing we're going to start with. Those of you that know the old hymn, O Holy Night, we used to sing it a lot. It has a very memorable line in it that says, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. And that's what we're about to talk about over the next three weeks is the thrill of hope. What was it about the birth of Jesus that creates not just hope, but the excitement around the hope for a weary world? And that's what we're going to be looking at. This three-week series is going to look at how in, in, in Christmas the promises of Christ have come true. The theme of hope is, is present throughout the whole biblical account of Christmas, really throughout the whole biblical account of history and everything that God's done. Uh, there is a hope there. There is a thrill of hope. And, and we want to look at that and be able to, be able to break it down a little bit as we're going to look back at, at when it, at, at the very first proclamation that Jesus was coming and, and another promise of, of when Jesus was coming and then when he actually came and look at how, how it fits into history and how God is fulfilling his promises today. The Greek word for hope is elpis, which means an expectation of good. An expectation of good. Now, some of you know people, um, well, let me change that. I want to change it up this service. How many of you are married or have been married? All right. Ladies, were y'all super excited about your wedding day? Man, you had it planned out. You knew exactly what you wanted. You, you, you had your idea of the perfect dress. You had your idea of the perfect cake or in my daughter-in-law's eyes, donut wall. Uh, you had the perfect idea of, of, you know, how you wanted it all to look and who you wanted to be in on it and, and all of that, right? And you, you, it was, that was your day. And when I do weddings, I, uh, I had the privilege of being able to, to, to do the ceremony for my son and his, and his new wife a few weeks ago. And, and it was such an honor. But, you know, when, when I do that, I always tell people before the service, remember, it's all about the bride, and that day is hers. And, and there is a hopeful expectation in there. You can't wait for that day. You're so excited leading up to that day. I don't know if y'all ever watched the show Friends, but when Monica and Chandler got married, as soon as the wedding was over, she just got depressed because I'm not getting married again. And they're on their honeymoon and they're and waiting in line. And she's like, and, 
and she said, quick, act like we're on our honeymoon because somebody else just got something free. And he's like, we are on our honeymoon. And she didn't care anymore because the wedding was over and her thing she wanted was that wedding day. She wanted that wedding ceremony. And that's what you ladies want most of the time, right? Men, what are you hopeful for? It's a little different. <laughs> Men could care less about that wedding day. They are expecting the wedding night. And there is a hopeful expectation of what's going to take place on that night and that following few days. We get excited and we can't wait. Regardless of where you are in life and what it is you're waiting for or expecting for, all of us have things in our life that we're hoping for, we're expecting to happen. And when someone gives us a promise that that's going to happen and it's someone we know we can count on their promises, we get excited. When they say, I promise you I'm going to do this, then we walk away saying, oh, yes. I know it's going to happen because I know that person is a person of their word. Um, I was lucky enough to have parents like that, that when they promised me something, I knew it was going to be fulfilled. There's other people, when they say, I promise, you just say, okay, well, I know that's never going to happen because they very rarely keep their promise, right? But when it's something you know you can count on, and in this case, the word for hope here is an expectation of good. Something good is going to happen. And then in Thayer's Greek lexicon, it states that the Christian sense hope, that in the Christian sense, hope is joyful and confident expectation. Joyful and confident. You're excited about it, you're happy about it, and you're sure it's going to happen. And that's the kind of hope we have in the story of Jesus. We can go all the way back to the beginning and we have that. Now we, a lot of people uh, celebrate Christmas by, by doing Advent. Uh, I didn't grow up with Advent. I grew up actually as a Baptist, and the majority of Baptists in my world at least did not do Advent. I do know Baptist churches that do it. I know Baptist people that do it. But in my tradition that I grew up with, we didn't do that. Uh, there was a time back when my kids were, were young uh, that we used to get together with my family and on and. It would be, you know, my, my parents and all of my brothers and sisters and our spouses and all of our kids. And I'm the youngest in the family. So by the time I had kids, the rest of them all had kids. And some of them were around the same age. Some of them were older. But we would all get together and it kept growing and growing. And every year we'd get together and we started looking less at how many presents to buy because, or at buying presents because it eventually got to the point that I can't afford to buy everybody a present. <laughs> you just can't do it. So we started doing some different things. And, but it was always important for my parents that we talk about the Word of God and talk about the real meaning of Christmas. And we do the Christmas story in some way or something. And one year, one person in my family recommended that we do some things with Advent and, and look at some of that and study it. And one person in my family got very upset because they had never seen that tradition. They didn't know it. And they thought it must not be of God because we didn't do it as Baptists. And, and, and surely, if we didn't do it, it's not godly, right? Uh, but <laughs> it kind of caused a little thing. And here's the deal. I, I want to encourage you. This is kind of a side note. But folks, read, travel, talk to people that are different than you. Spend time with people that are of different colors, different ethnicities, different cultures. You'll be surprised. You don't have to agree with everything they say or do. But experience it. And under, you know what you're going to find out? I've traveled to, I think it's 11 different countries and, I don't know, 40 states or so. Um, I've, I've 
been in a lot of different cultures. I do speak Spanish. So I've spent a lot of time with Hispanics. Uh, but I've also spent a lot of time with, with various different cultures and talked to them. And you know what I found out when, whether I'm having dinner with a millionaire or, I've ha- or I'm having dinner with somebody in a little hut who still uses an outhouse? People are people. Everywhere I go, they have fears, they have worries, they have doubts, they have confusion, they have laughter, they have fun, they have joy. And the thing about it is sometimes if we don't, some of those things that we're missing out on will actually make us better. (laughs) And some of those things that they're missing out on would make them better if they knew it from us. Some of those things you can just learn about and never have to deal with because it doesn't fit who we are. But take a chance to at least learn about something. And that's the thing about Advent. I didn't know about it growing up. And I've learned about it some as an adult. I still don't do it like it's not, I hate to say it this way, but religiously. <laughs> but it's something that I enjoy reading about and learning about. And the thing about Advent is it is um, the season around Christmas that reminds, reminds us of the anticipation of the world that the world once had for Jesus, for his arrival before he came. This world was full of hope. The Jews were waiting for their Messiah. They couldn't wait for this, for, for this Savior to come and rescue them. Now, a lot of them thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom he was going to set up. They didn't understand what he was really going to do. But they were excited for it, and they were waiting for it for thousands of years. They held on anxiously waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And now we, in this generation, we anticipate the second coming of Christ. And we're able to, to get excited about that, knowing he's coming someday. We just heard our pastor teach on this recently. We don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen today. It, it could happen in, in 10 years. It could happen in 50 years. It could happen in 100 years. We don't know. But we do know it's going to happen. Why? Because God's kept his promise about everything else. And he's already everything he's ever predicted in his word has come true, except the things surrounding the return of Christ in the end time. So we know this is going to happen, so we anxiously await this. After Jesus' first arrival and before, uh, or Advent, sorry, Advent says that we live in the in-between times, the time in between Jesus' first arrival and his second coming. In this way, we can identify with and we can learn from the hope that the Jews had in anticipating the arrival of Jesus. And we can anticipate the return of Jesus and look back on when Jesus came to bring us this salvation. Um, if you go back in the Bible, the entire story of the Bible tells the story of Jesus and tells the story of God coming to man in order to, to, to be with us and to love us, to bring redemption to us. He came for us, and that's an awesome thing. And in Genesis 1, God created everything, right? In Genesis 2, he retells the story of creation with a little bit of added uh, information there that he didn't tell in Genesis 1. In Genesis 3... Humanity fell into sin, and God, was, and God cursed the world at that point because of sin. But amid the consequences of their sin, there was still the thrill of hope. There was still a hope with mankind. And the first time it was really revealed was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Try to do this. This verse is historically called the 
I did it again. I can't say this word to save my life. I couldn't say it in seminary either. Um, it's a word we use very, very rarely. It's a long word, pro-evangelism, pro-evangelism, pro-evangelism. I can't say it right. But it means the first gospel. Okay? That's what it is. It means the first gospel. As both Jews and Christians look at it, it's the promise it's the first promise of a Savior when we look at this. This is looking at it. He's talking about the day that someday the, the seed of the woman is going to go against the serpent. And the serpent is representing Satan. And the seed of the woman is Jesus. And yes, that serpent's going to get a little strike at his heel. He's going to do a little damage. He's going to cause a little pain. But Jesus is going to crush his head. And Jesus is going to be victorious. He was victorious when he rose from that dead, from, from that grave, and he's going to be victorious in the end um, when, when it all takes place. And this is the first picture of that is it, it reveals that someday a Savior is coming. It's so important. For thousands of years, the, G, the Jews yearned for God to send them the Messiah who would restore the kingdom to Israel. And finally, all of a sudden, there's this young girl who's engaged to be married in our society today, she would have been way too young. But in their society, she was engaged to be married. And she was still a virgin. Now, all of a sudden, she finds out she's pregnant. Now, if that happened today, we'd be sending the girl. And she, she really believed she had gotten pregnant as a virgin. We'd be sending her to a psych hospital, right? We wouldn't believe her. But in that day, in this particular instance... There is so much proof, so much evidence. And plus, we trust our God who's never lied that this happened. And all of a sudden, this young girl had to go home and tell her mom and dad, Mom and dad, I'm pregnant, but I've never had sex. Wow. If you were a parent, how easy would that be to believe? It'd be a little tough, wouldn't it? But yet she did it. And, in this little, and then she had to then what? Go tell her fiancé she's pregnant. And he knows He's never been with her, so whose is it? He has a hard time believing her, as most men would, right? I mean, if, you're, if your fiancé comes to you, you've never been together, and she tells you she's pregnant, what would you think, men? You would question it, right? You would break up with her. You'd move on. You'd say, I'm not having anything to do with this girl. She's lying to me, and she's sleeping around. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up, and an angel tells Joseph, listen, boy, you need to listen to this woman. She's telling you the truth. Now, men, there's a lot of advice in that. Understand, there's a lot of times we need to listen. But I will say this, they ain't always right. Um, <laughs> sometimes they're wrong. But, man, there's so many times that I need to listen to the wisdom of my wife. There's so many times that I get in my own head and I need, the, I need to, to trust what she's telling me. In this case, Joseph, every logical thing tells you, Joseph, you don't need to believe this. But an angel said, Joseph... She's pregnant, but she's pregnant with the Son of God. And he had to believe it because the angel was speaking. And he said in Matthew 1.21, the angel declared to Joseph, it said, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He didn't say he will save the people from their worry. He didn't say he'll save the people from their problems. He didn't say he'll save the people from their pain or their sickness. He said he will save the people from their sins. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what he does. That's his role. That's his purpose. When Jesus entered the world, the Savior whom God had promised after the very first sin had finally arrived. That same promise that we saw in Genesis 3.15, when Jesus was born, hope was delivered. 
After thousands of years of waiting on him, he was there. But you know what? A lot of people still didn't believe it. A lot of people still didn't recognize it. All the proof was there. People, people saw it. People knew it. King Herod, even though he didn't want to believe, knew it. Knew there was something going on. All around, in every story we see, in all the history lessons that are out there, we see that there was something unique here. There was something going on. But the people didn't want to believe it, most of them. But yet, this is what the world had been waiting on for thousands of years. You know, popular culture is filled with a lot of stories and illustrations of a chosen one who's coming to save the people from all of their problems facing them, whatever it is at that time. You know, Star Wars has multiple generations of Skywalkers who they hope will be the one to set them free. The Matrix has Neo, the, the one who can defeat the machines at their own game and set humans free once again. In the 80s, we had a little movie that's not one of the most popular movies, I don't guess, but I thought it was cute called The Golden Child. It was Eddie Murphy, and he was a, he was a, a, um, a social worker who some guys came to him and told him he was the chosen one that was supposed to rescue a little child who was the golden child. And this child had, was, had mystical powers, and he, he was going to set free all of humanity and, and do amazing things. And and uh, it, it was just a stupid movie that I thought was kind of funny. But there he was, this, this child that was chosen. I guess one of my favorites is, is the story of Superman. Superman, this little baby in another world who the world's about to be destroyed and he gets sent to earth to be the savior for mankind. I mean, well, I guess in the story he was just being, they were just trying to save their son. But he comes here and has all these powers and he's able to do things. And one of my favorite Superman movies was The Return of Superman. Or Superman Returns. What is it? Superman Returns. And he, uh, in that one, this is years ago, but we were actually, we went to the movies and saw this one, and we're sitting there, and there was a certain scene that just grabbed me and caused me to think about the mission work we were doing at the time. And I've used this in, in several sermons dealing with missions, but I think it's relevant today. And Superman had been gone for a while. He had left, and he wasn't around, and so the world was kind of going crazy. They were used to him coming in and, and, and solving crime and helping people and doing good works, and all of a sudden he wasn't there. And Lois Lane was hurt, of course. She was so disappointed because she was in love with Superman, and he had left. And she even wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning article about Superman and how the world doesn't need a savior. Well, Superman shows back up, and he comes in, and he's trying to work his way back in. He goes to see Lois, and she's mad, and he picks her up, and he starts to float up above Metropolis, and he's up in the sky over Metropolis, way up in the clouds, and he says, Lois, what do you hear? And she said, I don't hear anything. He said, really? I hear everything. He said, you wrote in your article that the world doesn't need a savior, but I hear them every day calling out for one. And the thing is, all of these stories that we talk about in every culture, every part of the world, they have these stories of this one person who's coming. They're all made up. They're all there for our enjoyment, but they're all there because everybody knows around the world, as you meet those people I was talking about earlier, they're the same. We all have this hole. We all have something missing. We're all looking for that Savior. For that one that can fill that missing spot. For the one that can bring that comfort and that peace that we long for. The one that can bring salvation that we know we need but we don't understand how to get. 
every, every culture is looking for it. And we have all of these stories out there. And there's a lot more than the ones I just named out there in movies and, and books that has this special person who's coming to save everybody. And you know what? We actually have the one true story. We have the Savior. We have the Son of God. We have the one who came to give his life for our sins, for our salvation, for our reconciliation. We serve a God who's able to change lives and who did what others wish they could do. There's something inside of us written in our D the DNA of our hearts that yearns for a Savior. God put the thrill of hope in each one of us. He put it there. He put something in us that makes us want something more. And that hope began to be fulfilled in Jesus' arrival on earth. But its ultimate fulfillment is when the chosen one is welcome in your heart. When you receive him in as your personal Lord and Savior. You remember what it was like when you first got saved? My, the pastor I grew up under used to always make a statement about it, especially when we would come back from youth camp all fired up and when people would get saved, he'd say, man, they're just ready to charge hell with a water pistol. And that's what it's like. When you first meet Jesus, man, you can't wait to tell somebody. You're so excited and you want everybody to know about this joy that you have and this hope that you have and this salvation that you have and you can't wait to share it. Me, I was raised in a Christian home. We studied the Bible. We prayed. We, we went to church three times a week at least. We, we did you know, what Christians were supposed to do in our culture and our society in that day. My parents lived it. They believed it and they lived it. And, and, and my dad's still alive. He's still 84 years old. He still lives it. Um, but I prayed a prayer when I was a young kid and I was baptized and I still went to church. I still memorized scripture. I still did the things I should have done for the most part. But I started getting away from God as a teenager. I was still going to church. But I was a different person outside of church. The summer after my junior year in high school, I went to this camp. We had been going to it for years. Uh, church camp. And, and I didn't want to go this year. Every year we would go. And every year I'd rededicate my life. And we'd come back and we'd have a big church service on Sunday night and we would all tell, sing songs and tell stories of what happened at camp. And I was always one that would speak and say something about what God did for me this week and I'm changing and I'm going to be on fire and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it would last maybe two or three months. And then it would fizzle out and I'd go right back to the old dwindle. This year I didn't even want to go. My mom made me go because she saw what was going on in my life and how I was getting away from God. The night before we were leaving, we were supposed to leave early Sunday morning. Uh, Saturday night, I went and got a friend of mine, told my mom we were going to the mall to pick up some, some things I needed for camp. But we ended up going downtown. We went to the mall, but we ended up going downtown. And let's just say we weren't good Christian little boys that night. There were some things that shouldn't have taken place that night that did. I got up the next morning, got on a bus, 
went to camp. And here's the thing. I made up my mind this year. I am not going to rededicate my life. I'm tired of doing it. I'm tired of lying. I'm tired of failing. I'm not going to rededicate my life. But we get there on Sunday night. We meet our counselor. And he's, he's talking to our group and of guys that are in our cabin. And he's sharing things about him. And he's asking us questions. He wants to know where we are. And I told him, I'm a Christian. I was raised in a Christian home. I was baptized when I was a kid. I've, I've, and I was named all the things I could do and all that I knew. And I, I wanted to impress him. And I told him, I'm a Christian. And uh, he's like, good. And so we went through the week, and I tried my best to ignore the sermons. I tried my best to ignore the Bible study. I tried my best to talk to others. Have you ever sat next to a teenager who, who tried to talk to you, and you didn't talk back? I tried to talk to everybody that sat next to me, and every one of them said, shh, I'm listening, in some way or another. And it made me so mad because I did not want to hear what was being taught that week. Friday night, it's our final night of camp, and they always used to do this big fire, bonfire thing down, and they had like an amphitheater, little seating area, and we'd gather around the fire, and there'd be guys up there with guitars singing our songs that we've been singing all week at camp, and people would stand up and give testimonies of what God's done this week at camp. And I sat there that Friday night with my hand on the back of my head, bending down with my heads down between my knees. I can't do that anymore, but I could at 17. And I was just rocking back and forth, saying out loud, I'm not going to rededicate. I'm not going to rededicate. I'm not going to rededicate. And all of a sudden, I heard something in my head say, Dwindle, how can you rededicate what's never been dedicated? And I broke down. And I went and found my counselor, John, and I grabbed him and hugged him and said, John, I need to be saved. He said, Dwindle, you told me you are saved. Why do you think you need to be saved? And I said, I don't know. I just know I'm not saved. I need to be saved. And that night he prayed with me and I, and I asked Jesus into my life and some things changed. Was I perfect after that? Not even, not even a little bit perfect. But was I better? Oh, man. I went back in my senior year in high school. My life was different. There's kids that are two to four years younger than me that still to this day will tell you I was the most radical Christian they knew in high school because they knew me my senior year. I got to lead nine of my friends to Christ my senior year. God called me into ministry my senior year. And I was living, I wasn't perfect, but I was living it best I knew how. And I was growing and I was studying, I was learning. And then years later, I screwed up. God called me into ministry. He let me be a pastor. I screwed up. And then he let me be a missionary and I screwed up. I'm pretty, if you know anything about Dwindle, you know Dwindle screws up. But yet every time I've ever screwed up, God has continued to bring me back. And show me he still loves me. He's still here for me. As a matter of fact, the last major one was in, in, in 2010. And I walked away from my family. After 20 years of marriage, I walked away. And then um, in January 2012, I came to this church. I didn't want to come. I came for my kids. And then Pastor Troy in April became the pastor. And we went to lunch and he showed me grace. And he showed me love. And he let me know that God still loved me and God still would forgive me. And it wasn't long after that that I started trying to beg my wife to come back and save our marriage. Even though we'd been, we'd at that point, divorced for well over a year. And in, Jan in December of 2012, that same year, we remarried right in, in the building we were in then at City Church. Um, just us, our kids, Pastor Troy and Melody. 
and we had to start over. I had to start over. But the thing is, when I first became a Christian, I got so excited. I got so on fire, and I couldn't wait for everybody else to know it. I went through a phase where I kind of got away from God, and then I had to come back and renew it. And it's the same way. If you're married, you know there's times, no matter how good it is, there's times it's bad. And there's times it's hard. And you have to do something to renew that spark. There's times you got to go in and do something. to, Or maybe it's not really bad, but it's just blah. And you got to do something to renew that excitement, that thrill of hope. That thrill of hope you men had on that wedding night, that thrill of hope you women had on that wedding day, you want it back. And we've been together 32 years, not counting that almost two years we were apart. And we still, every once in a while, even in this last 10 years, we've been back together. It'll be 10 years this month. We still, every once in a while, have to do something to renew that spark. Every once in a while, you got to do something to renew that thrill of hope you had in that story of Jesus. Christmas, what a great time to renew that spark, that love for Jesus, that excitement that he's coming. He came for me. He came to save me. He came to forgive me. He came to love me. He came to give me an abundant life on earth and an eternal life in heaven, and I can't wait for it, and now I'm excited about the fact that he's coming back. What a great thing Christmas is to give us that opportunity again. Christmas should reignite the thrill of hope. Most of us here have received the Savior. Most of us here know Jesus in, in a personal way, but maybe not everyone. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But, as all, of the, but all of us also have other hopes. Some of us have hopes that we're just going to be able to have a decent Christmas. Some people have hopes that 2023 is going to be better than 2022 because we thought it was surely going to be better than 2021, which had to be better than 2020 because, man, was that one bad. And yet every year <laughs> there's problems and there's, there's good things that happen. Some people are holding on to hope for a fulfillment of a dream or a restoration of something that's been broken. Me personally, I have a hope right now. For someone in my life who's wandered away from God. And there's days it feels like there's no advancement. There's days it feels like God's not doing anything. You know what? I bet the Jews felt that way for thousands of years. Waiting on the Messiah to show up. But yet I know that God has promised me. And I know that God loves that person and he has a plan. And even though I can't see it in my little tiny view of things, I trust in the God of hope. The good news for us is that in addition to being a God of hope, Jesus is a God of the promise. He's also a God of the promise in the story of Abraham and Isaac. We see this in Genesis 22. God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only son. Now remember, God had told Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, but yet he's an old man and hasn't had any kids. And now all of a sudden he finally has the kid that's supposed to be the promised one. And what happens? Here he is and God says, hey, that kid that I promised you, the kid that's supposed to start the genealogy, the kid that's supposed to bring about the fulfillment of the promise, go sacrifice him. I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice that promise that I gave you. 
And Abraham goes up there, and it's a great story of faith, but you know what else it is? It's a great story of God's provision when he asks for a sacrifice. When God asks you to sacrifice, I don't care if it's financially, if it's with your time, if it's with your talent, if it's with talking to somebody that you think is a total idiot. If he asks you to sacrifice something in your life, you know what? He will every time, 100% of the time, without fail, provide what's needed for that sacrifice. He will never ask you to give up something that he will not provide for. Abraham went into that, went up on that mountain with his son, probably fearful and worried, but yet trusting God that he was going to provide. He got up there, and what happened? God provided a, a, a ram. They were, able, they, they were able to sacrifice that instead of his son. And after that happened, in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, it says this, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God says, Abraham, because of your faithfulness, because of your willingness to trust my resources, because of your willingness to do what I've asked you to do, I'm going to bless you, and the world is going to be blessed through you and your generations to come. We have a God that fulfills promises. Between Adam and Abraham, it would have been really easy to lose hope that God would bring an end to the world's suffering. But God reiterates his promise in Abraham, and at the same time, he points out the incredible pivotal role that sacrifice plays in our relationship with God. And then he goes on to show how all this is related and how he's still bringing it about. In, in Matthew chapter 1, it says this, in verse 1, it says, This is the beginning, I mean, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Most of us get to that part of, of, of the Bible and we start to read it, we just skip over those first 17 verses because why do we want to read all these names? What, what's the important part of that? And I'll be honest, there's times that I, I skip over it because I've already read it. But... Um, but the truth is there's a lot of things to learn from the genealogy. And there's things in there that's supposed to make us better. And there's things in there to help explain how it all works to show that God is a God that keeps his promises. And he had a plan from the beginning. And he's fulfilling that plan through these genealogies. Matthew is showing the, the continuity that Jesus had with the line of David and the line of Abraham. He's the promised Messiah who God stated he would send into this world. And he's going to send him through this line. Matthew also shows in verse 16 how Mary can be a virgin, but Jesus is still in the line of Abraham and David. He said this in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Jesus is the son of Mary, who is married to Joseph. Joseph raised Jesus as if he was his own son. Joseph was the earthly father to Jesus. So therefore, Jesus comes through the line of Abraham and David. It's God's word to Abraham in Matthew's genealogy, in God's word to David, or in God's word here to Abraham, and in Matthew's genealogy, Scripture is showing us how God is faithful to keep his promise. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had people in my life that did not keep promises very well. I've had people in my life that were really good at it. I've had people that were hit or miss. Now, me personally, I'm a hit or miss, I guess, because I can think of a lot of times that I failed. Uh, but here's the deal with me. 
if I actually promise you something, if I have to break that promise because of an emergency or because of something that it's, it's like the best reason ever to break a promise and I have to do it, I still feel like total dirt. I hate not following through. When Pastor Troy called me yesterday, I knew I still had a very busy day Saturday. I knew we were going to have a late night Saturday night. I knew I was going to be tired, and I knew I was not going to be anywhere near as prepared as I like to be for a sermon. But when a man of God calls me and says, hey, a man who's kept his promise to me over and over and says, hey, I need you tomorrow. I'm sick. There's no way I'm turning him down. And I would have had to be deathly sick myself this morning to miss this. But there are some times that those promises really do make a difference. When I was a kid, we used to go camping pretty regularly. When we were little, my, my dad bought a pop-up camper, one of those that, little small ones. And then he eventually bought a pull-behind, full pull-behind camper. And then he eventually got him an RV. And he and my mom loved to camp. And we used to love to go camping as kids. The, thing, the, the only consistent thing about it was no matter where we went, hot, cold, rainy, or whatever, my parents slept in the camper and we kids slept in a tent. And I was the youngest, so there was a time when it became just me. And, you know, if you're in a tent, I don't know what they're like nowadays. I hadn't been camping in a tent in a long time. My wife doesn't like tent camping. But um, back then, if it started to rain and you touched the tent, it leaked. It would drip water right there where, where you touched it. Well, if we've never met, I'm dwindled. <laughs> I'm going to touch that tent. Um, and I'm usually going to do it right over where it's going to drip on my face all night. Uh, but we enjoyed going camping. There was one time we'd been looking forward to it. We had something planned, and we were going to be going to a special spot, and I was so excited. And there was a big emergency that came up, and my dad had to cancel. And it wasn't a promise. It was just, but it was an expectation that we were going. And, all of a, and then he came to me and let me know that we weren't going to be able to go that weekend because of this that was going on. And I was upset. I was mad. Um, because I, I felt like he was breaking a promise. He told me then, though, he said, do I promise you we're going to go camping. We just can't this weekend. He didn't tell me when, and I didn't know. And that, actually, I think it was a couple of months past. And I got up once. It was the summertime, so I was getting to sleep in. And, you know, during summer back then, I was one of those. It didn't matter if I went to bed at 8 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning. I was still sleeping until at least noon. Um, and that, that was me as a kid. Um, but my dad was an early riser. I, I happened to wake up that morning early for some reason. I heard some noise, and I went outside, and my dad was hooking up the camper and getting it ready. And I just looked at him with big eyes like, what are we doing? He said, we're going camping. We're going to go, do, go like we were supposed to before. We're going to do it this weekend. And so we took off, and it was one of the best weekends. I mean, we got to do the campfire. We got to roast marshmallows and all that we got we got bitten by mosquitoes it was just a blast um but the thing was that weekend I think was one of the early times in my life where I realized that my dad really does keep his promises and it meant something to me well, folks if there's anything I can get you to understand today I want you to understand that we serve a God who keeps his promises because of Jesus we can have hope and rejoice that we have a God who keeps his promises. We can see it in Jesus. We can see it through the genealogy. We can see it through the stories. We can see it through history. That because of Jesus, we can have hope and we can rejoice that we have a God who keeps his promises.
Christmas reminds us that we serve a God of the promise and a God who keeps his promises.